uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet yet. As Dan said, my name is Ben, and I'm one of the lead pastors here. And uh, you came on a good Sunday as we're going through our vision and our core values here at PKC as we establish ourselves as a new community. Um, but before we get to that core value, if you know me at all, uh, some of you know that I go down to Vancouver to get my hair cut, okay? So let me explain why I make that trek. I've been going to the same guy. I actually got my hair cut this week. What do you think, Ben? What do you think? Pretty good? Uh, yeah? Okay. Thanks. Thanks for the affirmation. Uh, but I go to the same guy. I've been going to him for eight years, okay? And it's not just because he cuts my hair uh, well. It's also because I built some rapport with these guys at the barbershop, right? We love to chat. We love to get into movies and film. But at the same time, these guys know that I am a Christian pastor. So a lot of the times, because I built rapport with these guys, a lot of times they ask me questions like, what is the meaning of life? Or sometimes now, as they're getting older, I, I've known one of these guys he was like 22 when he was cutting hair, and now he's like 30. So he's starting to ask me questions about parenting, knowing that I have four kids. And so a lot of the conversations usually are pretty light. But I remember one time, right, even though in conversation there's a lot of respect in beliefs and opinions, uh, this one time, this one conversation caught me kind of off guard. So at the time, at this barber shop, there was this barber, uh, let's call him Kyle, okay? I don't get my haircut from him, but on occasion, I would get my haircut from him, say if my barber was out of town or something. But Kyle was like the life of the party at this barber shop. He doesn't work there anymore. And he would always be yapping away, telling stories, telling a joke for everybody in the barber shop to hear, okay? And so a lot of the times, you would think that he is joking, because he's just that type of guy. He's not very serious. And so as this day went, uh, uh, that I went to the barbershop uh, unfolded, uh, he had this guy in his chair and he was chatting him up. And I was sitting there getting my hair cut quietly and he was telling some jokes. And all of a sudden the conversation, I don't know what bridges the gap to this subject, but I just heard him explain, explaining a branch of Scientology to the guy that was sitting in his chair. And he went on to talk about how they believe that you go to these different planets, how aliens live inside of you. And as I was listening to him, I just thought he was leading into a joke. So I started laughing and smiling. But abruptly, like in a moment, he like just turned to me as I was laughing. I was waiting for the punchline of the joke. And he's like, why are you laughing? You believe in something just as ridiculous. You believe in a zombie Jesus. So why are you laughing? And in that moment, you know, it's that awkward moment when you don't know if someone's joking or not. And you kind of like, ha, ha, ha. Like, you know, you laugh awkwardly waiting for him to be like, I'm just joking. But he didn't do that. And I kind of just sat there awkwardly smiling, trying to move past the situation. Thank God I don't have to make conversation when you sit in the barber chair. So I just like sat there just looking at the clock. Can't, couldn't wait till I just got my haircut done, right? But this story I tell you is just a sampling of the cultural reality that we live in nowadays. A culture that is uh, moving into a posture of increased hostility against or even a view that Christianity is irrelevant or extreme in our culture. But see, in that moment, I, I didn't get mad because I, I looked at this guy, Kyle. I was thinking about what he said, and I was like, yeah, I don't know this guy's background. 
I don't know if anybody sat down with him and it actually explained Christianity to him. Like, if no one did that to me, I would have come to the same conclusion that he did. Like, yeah, some of our beliefs are ridiculous when you think about it, right? See, I share this story not to pull the victim card or for, uh, to create this us versus them mentality. Why I share this story is because I believe if Jesus was walking this earth, he came for a guy like Kyle. This guy that was voicing his beliefs in these ridiculous claims. But the thing about what he said, though, the thing about what he was explaining to the guy in his seat was it told me that he was curious about religion, right? He must have been curious enough, and he must be searching for answers that some way, somehow, I don't know, maybe late one night, like it happens, he delved into this idea of Scientology to find out if there was any truth in this so-called belief system, right? This week, as I was preparing to talk about this, uh, uh, this message, this talk, uh, in my devotions, uh, I've been trying to go through um, the, you know, the Bible in one year in chronological order. I'm like uh, 320 days behind, so pray for me. Um, it's not because I haven't been reading my Bible, but I just haven't been using this app. But anyways, this verse over and over again kept hitting me this week. And it's found in one version, Luke 5.31. It reads like this, Jesus answered them. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Jesus comes after the sick. Jesus goes after the lost, the broken, people like this barber. And I share this verse with you because I want it to frame this next cultural value of ours here at PKC as we build on these pillars, okay? This is the cultural value. We believe because we're going after people, we're living on mission, we are called to challenge culture's view of Christianity. We as a church are going to challenge culture's view of Christianity. You know, when you hear that, the reason that I wanted to frame it with, with this verse is because you can easily think that what I mean by that, because of the combative language, is that we're going to go toe-to-toe with cultural ideas out there, trying to prove to them why they are wrong. But to, to take this statement in that way is to miss the point. We, we are about this because we are going after the loss. To expand on what I mean, you can see it on the screen. This is what we mean when we say we're challenging culture's view of Christianity. We are committed to calling a generation back to authentic discipleship in Orthodox Christianity. That's not Greek Orthodox Christianity. That is traditional, historic Christianity. The tenets, the principles, the beliefs that the church going back in history has been built on that are the foundations of the gospel. We go on to say, in order to do so, we must dismantle deeply held assumptions about God, the church, and Christianity. And this is our desire. Our desire is to present Jesus as he truly is, not as our culture wants him to be. See, the norm in our day and age is for people to walk away from Jesus. Not only that, it's the norm for people to reject religion altogether, outright. There's an increase of people just claiming to have no religious affiliation whatsoever. A census done in 2021 found that 34.6% of people in Canada claimed to have no religious affiliation whatsoever. Jumped to BC and that percentage jumped to 52.4%. The the highest that it's ever been in history. 
And the sad thing is, the majority of those who claim to have no religious affiliation whatsoever, one of the main reasons that this report, this, this uh, article said or highlighted was this, quote, an expert, I think people moving away from religious tradition says, uh, sorry, quote, I think people moving away from religious traditions has not so much to do with their spirituality or their faith, but has to do with the rejection of harms caused by religious tradition. The article goes on to say a safer alternative to Christianity is secularism. Another quote, and, that, and in that way, secularism is very important, he said as it's a way to res- represent the neutrality where everyone can feel welcome and included. See, most people walk away from religion altogether because when it comes to whatever religious institution or establishment, they don't feel welcome or included. That's because in our culture, we put a high value on this idea of inclusivity. And because of that, because we want to be an inclusive people, religion to us is not palatable some of the times. The reason that this value is so wildly accepted and toted in this secular culture that we live in, right, which is the article proposing the answer to all our problems, is that in this belief system, we believe, secularists believe that the only way to true freedom is the full inclusion of all people, to be loving and accepting of everyone. As a Christian, you you can resonate with that, right? There's a lot of good in that statement. There's a lot of good in that desire. The idea is, even though it falls apart, which I'm going to get to in a couple of minutes, even though it falls apart, a culture's idea of inclusivity falls apart, the idea or what's at the heart of the idea is good. What people are trying to do that hold on to this idea, they're trying to create a society, they're trying to create a culture where you feel like you belong, that you're accepted, that you're loved for who you are. But this is what I want to do this morning. I want to dismantle culture's assumption that when it comes to Christianity, that it's not inclusive. What what if Christianity is more inclusive than we know? What if Christianity is more inclusive than culture makes it out to be? See, what if most of culture's assumptions about God, church, or Christianity are based on opinion, more so based on and founded on the word of God or Jesus' own words? So this morning, I want to go straight to the source, the mouth of Jesus, recorded by John in John 14, 1. Because what if Jesus truly offers a way for true equality and true freedom that culture so deeply desires. John 14.1 reads like this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth 
and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Some say this is the most controversial statement that ever came out of the mouth of Jesus because it's such an exclusive claim. But even though exclusive, exclusive claims are not popular in our culture, in order to fully understand what Jesus is saying, we, we need to move past our initial dislike of this statement and ask the question, as one author says, Jesus is the only way to what? Right? We need to put the exclusive claim being made in the, concept, in the context that it's being given. So let me give you uh, some context. A dinner is happening in this scene. They're in this upper room celebrating the Jewish festival called Passover, where God saved their ancestors out of slavery from under the Egyptians. So think about like a Thanksgiving dinner of sorts, a celebratory feast that they're, they're uh, meeting around. And in the middle of the celebration, Jesus does a couple of awkward things. First, he gets down on his hands and his knees and he starts washing his disciples' feet. Which, it's a talking point all in of itself. But he goes on and he makes some statements. He's telling his disciples what's about to happen. He's like, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And actually, somebody around this table is going to betray me tonight. He goes on to say that I'm leaving you and where I'm going you cannot follow, alluding to the way that he's about to die. Like talk, talk about like just sucking the, the life out of this party, right? Jesus is like killing the vibe. He's not in this moment turning water into wine, but he's trying to get a point across. Scholars say uh, John, 12, uh, John chapter 12 to 19 happens in like a week. So it's safe to say his death is probably less than a week away. Understanding this, you understand the anxiousness in the room in this moment. The topic of death, when brought up, instills a bit of fear in anyone. This is why Jesus starts out by saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. We humans in general don't like talking about death, do we? Separation always brings about the flood of all kinds of questions in our heads, especially for those of us who are left behind. For those of us who have lost someone uh, we love, we know the deep sorrow of losing them often turns into uh, a difficulty of integrating the state of loss with the questioning sense of what comes next. See, death is a human problem that no matter what your religion or political view or who you are is a reality that you have to face. That death is a human problem. But the beauty about Christianity, it says and it proclaims to us that death isn't the ultimate reality. In this context, Jesus is making uh, this exclusive statement. He's talking about a person's destiny and about what would happen to them after they died. I love how one of my friends put it. He says, in this moment, this is not some abstract philosophical or theological doctrine. It's a serious subject that addresses the fate of everyone who has ever lived. And this is where the hope 
of Christianity or the beauty of the gospel comes in. Jesus starts speaking about this hope and he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying to his disciples, trust me. Trust me, guys. Me leaving is the best thing for you. Hold on to what I'm saying here. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Isn't it interesting that Jesus uses these words, house, home, my father's house. He's using this metaphor to describe heaven. Like when we think about home, like home is a powerful idea to us humans, isn't it? We have within us this longing for home. A longing, as one pastor puts it, that exceeds the reality of our individual experiences of home and family. Like this time of year, as the holidays start back up again, I just remember being out in Ontario over the last like three, four years before we moved back to BC in 2021. And I remember when the holidays came around, I had this deep sense and longing for home just all of a sudden erupt inside of me. And I don't know what you think about when you think of home, but right away, the first thing that I always missed and thought about in those moments was my mom's cooking, okay? Celebration dinners like tonight, Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever it is, right? My mom would just have this great spread. I'm like looking forward to it already tonight, right? I can think about the turkey, the stuffing, stovetop stuffing, because like, you know, there's nothing like stovetop stuffing. But she has it all laid out, ready to go, right? And in those moments in Ontario, sitting there isolated because we didn't know very many people, like I would be thinking of these moments, I'm thinking about our house being full of people. A lot of times we'd invite over friends. There'd be laughing, right? Home being a place where I knew I belonged, where I knew I am loved, where I knew I am accepted, right? If you have similar thoughts or memories of wherever home is for you, you have a taste of what Jesus is talking about in this moment. Even if our memories of home aren't the best, Deep down, we still miss it, don't we? And here's where the problem comes in. See, sometimes when it comes to these longings, it's difficult to satisfy in this world. One author puts it like this. Oftentimes, you know, when thinking of home or those memories that we have with our families, we try to recreate those memories, don't we? We try to think of Christmases past or those vacations, and sometimes we try to recreate those moments only to be disappointed. What if those memories in and of itself aren't really the source of those longings? Our culture tries to satisfy uh, those longings in many ways, but C.S. Lewis called this longing, he called it a spiritual homesickness. A sense that as humans, we were built for something that transcends our human experience. Jesus, knowing this, says to these disciples, says to these humans, my father's house has many rooms. What I want you to see here is Jesus is speaking to a deep human longing in this moment. 
Room can simply be understood as abode or dwelling place or, or permanent residence. But this morning, I don't want us to get up, like caught up in a dialogue about what we think heaven is going to be like. Because to do that is to miss the point of what Jesus is saying here in this moment. Some translators have translated rooms to mansions, right? So maybe uh, if you've grown up in church for a long time, somebody uh, in jubilation might have sh- shouted out at one point in time, like, I have a mansion waiting for me in heaven, right? And that's not a bad idea in and of itself, but to think about it only in that way is just to think about it in a materialistic way and is to miss the point of what Jesus is saying in this moment. He's using a metaphor to kind of to, to describe to them a place that they cannot even imagine. To, uh, to describe to them a place that is above and beyond what they can even picture in their minds. One scholar puts it like this, and this is how he encourages us. One must take great care not to visualize God in some earth-like place. Since we are bound by space-time limitations in all our thinking, we must not limit our concept of God's domain to something like our idea of a three-story universe where heaven as the dwelling place of God is up. Clearly, God is not running fast to catch up to our supercomputer space technologies. God is a long way ahead of us. The teacup of our thinking and language have not even yet approached the capacity of holding the ocean of divine truth. The domain of God is certainly beyond our finite thinking. The best way we can do is to describe God's domain in metaphors. And that is exactly what Jesus, the agent of God, did in this moment for his bewildered disciples. We're not supposed to get hung up on the metaphor. The key to understand of uh, what heaven is like is found at the end of this paragraph in these three words, where I am. Where Jesus is, heaven is there also. That understanding for us right now is sufficient. Don't worry about the rest. Why? Because it's going to be better than you can even imagine. Better than you can even think in this moment. But the beauty of Jesus and our relationship with him is that he gives us a glimpse. He gives us a taste of what heaven is going to be like because he sends his spirit to indwell in us in this moment. The spirit of Jesus. And if you experience his presence, you know you can experience his love, his goodness, his, the joy that comes from knowing him, the joy that comes from being in his presence. Those are all just small glimpses of what heaven is going to be like. Jesus not going into any more detail. He simply says, you know the way to the place where I am going. And I love Thomas in this moment, in this scene, okay? He's a realist. He's like looking at all the other disciples, just nodding their heads, pretending to know what Jesus is talking about. And he's like, okay, you guys really gonna let this guy just say what he's saying right now without actually asking him the question? Fine, no one has the guts to, I will ask him the question. Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way, right? In these words, in this question, he's expressing his skepticism, his doubt, his frustration with what God is saying. And I love this because it shows us a picture of what God is like, right? Because we see God, what God is like in Jesus. Jesus doesn't even blink an eye. 
to his doubt. Jesus doesn't scold him or shame him or rebuke him. Jesus gives him a gentle answer as we're going to see in a couple seconds. And this is what I believe it shows us. If you're a skeptic, if you have questions about Christianity, if you're exploring Christianity with us this morning, be encouraged because this scene shows us in this moment, I believe that Jesus doesn't see doubt as an obstacle to overcome, but a tool to be used to move you closer to him, closer to the truth, where he responds to Thomas' question in this way in verse six. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Father, except through me. Thomas, hearing this response, hearing this word way, must have thought of like, you know, a journey to be taken, a path to be found, to be revealed. But Jesus, making sure that there was no confusion in what he was saying, he attaches these two words, I am the way. I am, meaning that he is God the ultimate divine being, the creator of the heavens and the earth. I am being a title that all of these Jewish people would have recognized in an instant because of their history, because the name of God that was given to them in their their past stories that they would have told to each other. When they heard the words, I am, they knew that Jesus meant in those words that he was the source of truth and life. This is the theme that we can see threaded throughout John's gospel. If we go back to chapter one, he says this, chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. No one created Jesus because he is God, the uncreated. In him is life. He is life. All life finds its beginning in him. In a religious pluralistic culture, in that time and in our time, Jesus is making it very clear. He's not charting a new course to God like other religions. He is God. He is the way. There is no journey because point A and B on the map meet in him. He is the epitome of God's grace invading the world, becoming the bridge back to a relationship with God, the one and only God, Yahweh, the Almighty, the Word made flesh, the resurrection and the life, the true God, eternal life. The only one who alone can say these words, no one comes to the Father except through me. Because who else can show us the way to God but God, right? God is the only one that can lead us to himself. And the only way that this exclusive statement becomes offensive is if if Jesus, what Jesus is saying is not true, right? But he's saying that I am God. That's what he's claiming to be in this moment. Jesus takes it a step further than his disciples can anticipate or comprehend to to make his point. And he says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him. 
and you have seen him. See, only the Father can lead us to himself. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is the Father is genuinely present in Jesus. And this is the earth-shattering revelation I want you to get this morning. Jesus is saying the best way to know what God is like is to look at Jesus. To read and watch how he interacts in these gospel stories with people. To get an understanding into the personality of God. Look at how he interacts with a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. To understand his kindness, gentleness, mercy, goodness, and love. Look how he weeps over the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish leaders that are about to condemn him and sentence him to death. Or as I said a couple of verses ago, look how he gets on his hands and knees and washes the disciples' feet to understand the, the caring nature of this God. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. We need to let the stories of the Bible speak to us and help us realize how personal this God is. And at the same time, we need to allow it to erase any impersonal ideas of what we think about God, what we might have embraced or adopted from some cultural assumption that has told us what God is like. Christianity, unlike other religions, talks about God in such a personal way, not impersonal. Unlike other religions that point you to a truth, Jesus shows up on the scene and points to himself. He says, I am the truth. He is wisdom embodied that caused the universe to come into existence. He is reality. That is what he's saying in these moments. And if you have given your life to Jesus, if you're following him in this moment, I, I hope that as we remember this, as I speak about this, it just encourages your heart. It reminds you of who God really is and who, what he's like. This is the God you follow. But for some of us in this room that might be exploring Christianity, you're still hung up on this question, right? This exclusive claim. And you're asking yourself, does, is Jesus really saying that he is the only way? Right? The audacity of that statement, right? How dare he? Because the implications of what he is saying is that um, not all religions lead to God. And in a city like Surrey, the city that we live in, right? This just doesn't fly. Why? Because of the different influences of the different philo philo philosophies <laughs> and spiritualities that we know have seeped its way into culture. One being new age spirituality, which one of the tenets of that spirituality is this high cultural value that we have of inclusivism. If you don't know what I mean when I say that word inclusivism, this is what I mean. It's found in 
self-help books and all this different stuff. It's the idea that no one has a lock on the truth. Indeed, that all religions have some measure of the truth, merely being different paths to the same quote-unquote God or whatever transcendent reality exists. So while atheism uh, says that all religions are false, inclusivism says that all religions are true. One of my uh, friends who's a pastor, I loved, he, he just said, he always explained this in a way that just says stuck with me, okay? He said, if you want to understand inclusivism, go, you have to look no further or go no further than Will Ferrell and Talladega Nights. Ricky Bobby, anybody? You know what I'm talking about? Ricky Bobby? Anybody watch that movie? I know it's a throwback, okay? But Ricky Bobby, okay? So if you don't know, Ricky Bobby is a, uh, uh, or Will Ferrell in this movie, is a, a race car driver, okay? And there's this moment in the movie where he catches on fire, he's running around in this scene in his underwear, and he's crying out, help me Jesus, help me Jewish God, help me Allah, help me Tom Cruise, use your witchcraft on me to get the fire off of me, help me Oprah Winfrey. In other words, when it comes to God, you best hedge your bets, one God doesn't necessarily exclude the other God, so don't limit yourself to just one when you can believe in all of them at once. That's inclusivism. All joking aside, though, if you actually took the time to survey all the religions out there, okay? So think about Hinduism or Islam or uh, Sikhism or even atheism. Jesus is not the only one that makes exclusive truth claims. It's impossible to find a worldview that isn't exclusive in some way. In fact, one author says this, by trying to be inclusive, I'm going to say these words really slowly because it's easy to, you know, uh, mumble up or uh, get confused when it comes to inclusivity and exclusivity, right? Okay, so by trying to be inclusive, one actually becomes an exclusivist. You hear what I'm saying? The author says that take this quote-unquote Western nicety religion many Westerners have adopted. This is the religion most culture lives by when they view everyone as true and right as long as we avoid conflict. The people who tend to be most vocal about this are the same people who are highly critical of the narrow-minded judgmentalism of Christianity. They're happy to argue that all worldviews should be accepted and are true, but the reality is that their stance is exclusivist in itself for two reasons. First, in trying to be inclusive, ironically, the view ends up being exclusive. Second, the whole premise is exclusivist. Because to say I have a particular exclusive slash true slash right way of thinking above all religions, namely that they're all true, is to make an exclusive statement. And just so you don't think that, oh, Ben, you're a Christian and this is your opinion, listen to one New York Times op-ed article written by a non-Christian, okay? A Pulitzer Prize winning journalist by the name of Nicholas Kristof. This article is called The Dangers of Echo Chambers on Campus. You can find it on the internet. He says this, he confessed, we liberals champion tolerance 
except for conservatives and evangelical Christians. He says, we want to be inclusive of people who don't look like, who don't look like us so long as they think like us. See, exclusivism pushes back against the claims of Jesus by arguing that there is no one truth. And in doing so, it cuts off the branch on which it sits. Because saying there is no absolute truth is in itself a truth statement. This worldview is illogical. It doesn't make sense. Like if, just to, to capture it or to put it in a way that we can all understand, okay? Okay just in case if you aren't following with me. Like, you probably have heard this idea in our culture nowadays with this statement or this catchphrase, okay? Live your truth, right? Bro, you just live your truth, man. All right, hey, girl, you just live your truth, right? You've probably seen it on the internet or on some TikTok or something, right, Alex? But here's the illogical thing about this statement, okay? I'm homeschooling my kids, and our two boys right now, uh, sorry, I should say this, sorry, my, my wife would get mad at me. My wife is homeschooling uh, my kids. <laughs> Every once in a while, I drop in and I try to help out once my wife gets frustrated. So this week, <laughs> my wife got frustrated with my oldest son. So I got to swoop in and try to help them out with math, okay? So imagine this, okay? If I believed in this idea of inclusivism, okay? And I was telling my son to like live his truth, okay? And we're doing math. Okay, and so I ask him, this didn't happen, but I ask him, hey, two plus two is what? And my son, who's living his truth, says to me that the answer is five, okay? In a very practical way, if I was living out this worldview, I would have to turn to him and say to him, great, that's awesome, Shavi. The answer is five because that is true to you, right? Live your truth, bro. That's great. But if I did that, I would fail him as a father, right? Because we all know logically the answer to that question, two plus two is what? Four. You can yell it out. Thank you. It's four, right? You get what I'm saying. Here's the thing, though. When we compare Christianity to this cultural idea of inclusivism, right? This is the beauty of the gospel. It's radically inclusive. Let me tell you what I mean. If we concentrate too long in the exclusive statement that Jesus is making in this moment, we miss the inclusiveness of the invitation. Jesus talking to the disciples, if you go back, he says he's going to prepare a place for them. He's not saying this place doesn't exist, so he has to go and create it. No, this place exists because he says it's where the Father is. The preparation is his death on the cross, his resurrection and ascension. Remember, he's saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus makes a way for us to be in a relationship with God through his death, resurrection, and ascension. His death, taking the sins of the world on the cross, paying the punishment for all the sins in that moment, dealing with death, the consequence of sin, when he comes back to life. Therefore, when we believe in Jesus, this is the beauty of the gospel. Death loses its power on us because death no longer is the ultimate reality. It's not the only reality because we're introduced to life 
the life and reality that we know to be Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus' invitation to the world is to come and be in his presence. And as I said earlier, right, what did he say? My father's house has what? Many rooms. Many rooms. Do you hear what I'm saying? Many rooms. Listen to the ridiculous inclusivity of this statement. There is room for everybody. It doesn't matter where you were born, the color of your skin, your socioeconomic status, your gender, if you have a high school diploma or a doctorate, what you have done in your past, what you do for a vocation, what sins you have committed. See, the reality that makes us all equal as human beings is this, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And knowing that, knowing that we all struggle with sin, knowing that we aren't perfect, knowing that we all make mistakes, I'll be the first one to admit that I'm not perfect. Jesus comes and does something about that on the cross. He deals with all sin. He deals with the punishment that we should have to bear, which is death on the cross. And this is where, if you compare the idea of inclusivity in Christianity to the, the world's idea of inclusivity, it's just radically different. And it's radically beautiful. Because this is what it means if you embrace this idea that Jesus is talking about right here in this moment, okay? I was reflecting on this years ago, okay? And as I was doing this, and as it hit me for the first time in a fresh way, this is what was happening. I was watching the news, and like, you know, this weekend, there was tons of things about different wars that were going on, horrible things that were going on in the world, evil things. And in that moment in time, there was a mass shooting that was happening. And not only that, there was this businessman turned criminal who committed suicide in his jail cell due to the fact that he was facing horrendous charges of sexual abuse and human trafficking. And that week, as I went on the internet, over and over again, I saw this, this type of comment on social media, okay? And it went kind of like this. He got what he deserved. The world is a better place without him. And similar comments over and over and over again. And I understood what these people were saying, okay? They wanted justice, which is a good thing. It's a human desire that we all have. We want justice, when we see evil, right? Sin being the root of all evil, the cause of all evil. When we see evil in the world, we want justice. We want somebody to do something about it. So I get that type of comment. I get that type of reaction. But this is what we need to realize. On the cross, Jesus did something about it, right? He destroyed it. Absolutely dealt with it. And here is where Christianity is more inclusive than any other idea, okay? Because you have to ask yourself this question when it comes to this scene. And this is what I was thinking about in that moment, okay? If you believe in inclusivity as the world knows it, you have to ask yourself as a skeptic, as an atheist, as an agnostic, or whatever you are in this pluralistic religious culture, does your idea of inclusivity have room for a guy like that that committed suicide in his jail cell, a criminal, a murderer, does it have room for a guy like that? 
And knowing one of the main ideas in, the, in our culture is you get what you deserve. If you're being honest with yourself, you probably have to answer no, right? You'd have to answer no. But this is where the gospel blows up our human frameworks and it comes in because see, Jesus looks at a murderer named Saul in the book of Acts and in one encounter, he turns this murderer into a follower of Jesus because the scandal of the gospel, it's built on this idea of grace, which is you get what you don't deserve. It's a free gift we receive no matter what we do or no matter what we have done. And we receive this gift by putting our trust in Jesus. Therefore, that's why the invitation to, is to everyone, even criminals, even murderers. The gospel has room for people like this if we like it or not. This is the scandal of the gospel. This is the invitation this morning. You believe in God, believe also in me. For whosoever believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. This is the good news of the gospel. So my question as we end, as I pray this morning, as Alex comes up and leads us in worship, have you accepted this invitation? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Maybe right now in this moment on this Thanksgiving weekend, you hear Jesus' voice inviting you into his family this morning because he wants you to find the satisfaction of that desire, that longing to be home, to belong, to be accepted in him, in the person and work of Jesus this morning. So if you want to make that decision, as we move into a time of worship, Dan or myself would love to pray with you during service or even after service. Maybe you have some questions. Come up to us, ask us. We would love to talk to you. But for the rest of us that have already made this decision, let's stand together. Let's worship this God who through his sacrifice has made a way for us to be in a relationship with the God of the universe. On this Thanksgiving weekend, let's show him our gratitude and our praise as we sing these words back to him, to an audience of one. So let's stand and let me pray for us.